49 seconds early this morning because we have a lot of things going on. A few announcements. Please come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We're having a candlelight communion service with special cellists, and I hope the Nelson family instrumentalist will be here. And it, it's, a, it's a wonderful time, and we'll have light fellowship afterwards. Next Sunday, there is no Sunday school for adults or children, but we will have morning worship with a catered lunch afterwards. You're all invited, but only if you RSVP to me so we can make sure there's enough food. So if you haven't RSVP'd to me, just see me and, and let me know. You are going to need a worship bulletin. If you don't have one, I will give it to you. There's a hymnal in uh, a hymn sheet in here and a responsive reading. I have one announcement for you guys. Sorry. Uh, It's a great joy to be with you this Christmas season and to worship Christ with each of you. I'm looking especially forward to these little ones who will tell us to go tell it on the mountain, among other things, won't you guys? Looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. When I came here, there, there wasn't any children. And to see these children rise up within this church and cry out, the beauty of Christ at this time means a lot to me. I also want to recognize the people that serve in the church. I could recognize each and every one of you who I know and love from the bottom of my heart that I pray for daily and appreciate each one of you. But I do want to recognize a few. We've given some thank you notes and cards to some of the people within the church. Not all, but some. But I'd like you to stand and We'll say a special prayer because it's my chance to embarrass you. I'd like for the elders to stand. We have Jerry, Blake, and Andy in the back, if you're not familiar. I really appreciate the work that you do. I can't accomplish what I'm doing without you. Uh, they are right there by my side, helping me out of the ditch from time to time <laughs> and keeping me on track. And I appreciate each one of you more than you know. They do a tremendous amount of work in praying and ministering and helping. It is, uh, it is a great joy to work with these elders. 
the deacons of the church, I want to thank you too. And, and I hope I get all this stuff remembered. If I forget you, then I didn't mean to. So you'll have to just practice forgiveness. But we have uh, Isaac, and if you'll stand, and Daryl, who is uh, ill but not with us. And I don't see his wife here yet, but maybe. Oh, I think she's working in the nursery. Oh, there's Sharon. All right. You can stand on the behalf of, of Daryl. And uh, uh, I want to thank Jeremy for his work. We have Linda. Is she downstairs working? Okay. Jeremy, I'm going to call you, even though you stepped down from serving deacon, you still can't help but continue to serve. And I appreciate your work. Um, John and Henry in the back in the audio video. Department. John's still working on the video right now, so appreciate we appreciate you. Uh, Eric is uh, here helping with the maintenance. He's out of town. He's out of town. All right. And um, where's the hospitality queen, my very lovely bride? Back there. All right. You stand, and I appreciate a lot of the work that Catherine does. We're going to give you a break.
prepared to sing, so let's stand and take our hymn books and turn to 199. And we'll sing, O come all ye faithful. Luke 2.15 says, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. 199. <clears throat> Starts out, and we'll sing, Who is he in yonder stall? The Lamb is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Revelation 17, 19. We'll sing all five verses, and on the fifth verse, we'll sing that a cappella. So, who is he in yonder stall?
and have Caroline to sing that selection, O Thou That Tellest Good Tidings to Zion. Think about this glorious message written in this masterpiece work to focus our attention on Christ and Christ alone, the very Lord of glory. If you've listened to the complete selection of Handel's Messiah, you know this is preceded with what's called a wretched to We won't sing that, but I'll read it, the selection, to put your mind ready to hear the glorious praise to Christ our Lord. It comes from Isaiah 7:14, quoted in Matthew 1:23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us.
Good morning, church. Last year I read from Luke 2 for you, and I'm privileged today, given that the uh, Christmas celebration is in the evening service, to uh, read to you from Luke chapter 1, pages. 855 to 856. We won't be reading the entire chapter, but just verses 26 to 56. Again, that's Luke 1, verses 26 to 56. As this is a familiar passage, I'm just going to make <clears throat> two brief points. First, Mary was a virgin when Gabriel came to her and when she gave birth to Jesus. This was a supernatural work of God, which clearly indicates the deity of Jesus. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, our ESV, as well as conservative translations of the Bible, generally use the word virgin there. Some versions influenced by liberalism, like the Revised Standard Version, use the word young woman, but Conservative Protestants believe that that virgin is the right word to use in Isaiah 7.14, and we have it used several times here in Luke chapter 1. And of course, uh, 
Critics of the Bible have attacked the idea of the virgin birth since it's a clear indication of the deity of Christ. And if you remember my messages on J. Gresham Mason, he wrote a very able book defending the virgin birth of Christ. That's uh, still regarded as, as definitive on that subject. <clears throat> and of course, when Mary agreed to be the, the virgin mother of Christ, she was acting in great faith and really uh, trusting in God to a great degree because since she was only engaged to Joseph at that point, there was a distinct possibility that she would be accused of being adulterous as the Jews viewed engagement as really as serious as marriage. And in that case, the, the penalty was the death penalty. And so she was trusting that if that happened, that, that since God was responsible for all this, that he would take care of it, which of course took place. And second, this would follow on what uh, Paul was talking about in Sunday school today. He gave us a, a great lesson on the sola scriptura. When Gabriel referred to Mary as favored one, as translated in the ESV, which again follows Protestant translations at that point, um, he was saying that she was someone upon whom God had favor, that God had given her grace. Roman Catholic translations at this point use the phrase full of grace, following Jerome's translation of the Vulgate. William Plummer, who was a Southern Presbyterian of the 19th century, commented on that rendering that uh, full of grace, that that's right if it means full of grace, which you have received, but wrong if it means full of grace, which you have to bestow, which is how the Roman Catholics interpret it. And the, the Roman Catholics uh, then use that phrase as part of their Hail Mary prayer that they say regularly, which is uh, something that Protestants reject as, in effect, offering worship to Mary. Let us then pay reverent attention to the reading of God's holy word. Again, Luke 1, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, 
how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let us now look to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we humbly ask you to accept our hearty thanks for the many mercies which you've poured upon us. We bless you especially for sending your well-beloved son to take our nature upon him and to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. We rejoice that unto us a child is born, that unto us a son is given. And we would join in the multitude of the heavenly host in ascribing glory to you in the highest, peace, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We praise you for revealing to us the way in which mercy and truth have met together, in which righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And we accounted a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. O great and glorious Redeemer, wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, we praise you, we bless you, we worship you, we glorify you. We give thanks to you for your great glory, O Lord God, Lamb of God, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, God with us. But chiefly at this time, we adore you for leaving the glory which you had with the Father, before the world began. We know your grace, O Lord Jesus Christ, that though you were rich, yet for our sakes you did become poor, that we through your poverty might be made rich. O Son of David, have mercy upon us. You who did come, that we might have life and might have it more abundantly, be gracious to us. May we rejoice, O Father, to take his yoke upon us and to learn of him who is meek and lowly in heart, that we might find rest for our souls Grant that we, being made your children by adoption and 
remembering that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify himself with peculiar people, zealous of good works. Have compassion also on those who have never heard of the coming of our blessed Lord in the flesh. In him who has risen to rule over the Gentiles, let the Gentiles trust and find his rest to be glorious. Mercifully, with your, look with your favor upon the whole Christian world. May all that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let them rejoice as Christians in Christ their Savior, and let your grace teach them to deny all ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Have mercy upon us then, draw near to us, and meet with us, and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.
excuse me. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to 184. Angels we have heard on high. Luke 2.14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 184. Angels we have heard on high. children to the Nelson family and 
to you, the congregation, in singing of the glory of Christ. It is a joy to praise Christ together. It is a taste, a foretaste, if you will, of future glory in which the saints will gather around the throne and experience an event that is so incredible that we really don't have words to describe. And glory is, in many ways, insufficient. But it is the word we have, and it is the one we will use. It is a word that describes beauty. Beauty in spite of whatever else may mar it. It shines through. And that can be seen very clearly on the cross. Jesus Christ, as he dies to pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. The cross was intended by evil men to accomplish their wicked objectives. But as we've looked through the text of John, and if you have been with us, I'll review briefly. But what we see is God's intention for that very same event, and that is glory, the greatest good. We come to the cross this morning in the Gospel of John. We're going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter 19. John describes the crucifixion of Christ, simply says, in verse 16, <clears throat> so he delivered him, that would be Pilate, delivered Christ over to be crucified. The cross is an instrument of cruel death. It has become the symbol of Christianity, and hence we have one right behind us. This inglorious object becomes a great object of glory. Because it reminds us that the penalty for our sin, each and every one, has been borne by Christ. Everyone who repents, who turns to Christ, who believes in him, will not suffer unimaginable torment, but will enjoy an incredible blessedness with God forevermore. And as the little ones say, go tell that on the mountain. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was born. Jesus was the only man in all of humanity and let me add this in case you don't understand man, the definition these days, every human being. Jesus was the only one born, Adam was created, born without sin, without guilt. We've looked here in the trial leading up to this crucifixion. First, a fraudulent trial by the Jewish leaders. John just simply calls them the Jews. 
They have a sham child. They violate all the rules, all their protocols, because they have an objective, which is to find him guilty of death. They don't. Instead, they only find him guilty of making a true claim. That is, indeed, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. That is, he is the one who is the Savior, who is the Deliverer, and he happens to be God in flesh. This is truth. It was verified by all that he did, and John records those very signs in the Gospel even one of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews, John chapter 3, comes before the Jesus and says, we know you are from God because nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with him. Jesus was not doing these pretend and fake healings. He was actually giving blind people their sight back, deaf people hearing back, lame people who have been lame for all their life. He could tell them immediately, stand up, and not just stand up in some weakened condition, but pick up the very object you were laying on and walk. He could cry out to a man who is rotting in his flesh and say, Lazarus, rise up and walk. Come forth. And Lazarus, still with the grave clothes on him, bound, comes out of the tomb. Let me tell you, you've never seen anybody like this in history ever. This is Jesus Christ. This is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. The Roman trial, the pagans, they put him under the test. And we've read here in the text, Pilate, as wicked as a man as he might be, constantly refers to Jesus Christ as being what? Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And yet he gives in and delivers him over, verse 16, to be crucified. What crime did he commit? For what crime did he commit that Pilate would accuse him of? He had none. So instead he fixes his placard above his head, which would bear the sign of a crime. It simply read, King of the Jews in three languages so that all could read and all can see simply this. Even this pagan Roman government tells the truth occasionally. Jesus is the only one in human history that had not earned the wages of sin, which is death. So why did he die? Why did he voluntarily go to the cross as we have seen and we will flesh out? He died to pay for the sin for all who will trust him. He came this very advent, that is his coming, for that very purpose to save his people from their sin. Peter would put it this way. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. <coughs> By his wounds we have been healed. 
This was God's intent all along. Paul would put it this way, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, right, as we just said, so that we, in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus Christ demonstrated that indeed he is the righteousness of God and yet he dies. What is he doing? He's bearing not his sin, he has none. Even the false religious leaders and the pagan governmental authorities can find no fault in him because there is none. <clears throat> that could not be said of any of us or any other person. The righteousness then, the perfection that is required to stand before a holy God has been merited by Jesus Christ. That's why he's born in a manger, could have came as an adult and just died. Instead, he lived an absolute perfect life under the strictest laws there, and he fulfilled all righteousness. No one else has ever done it. In his attitudes, in his actions, in his thoughts, he merited all righteousness that would otherwise be required to stand before a holy God and at the same time, then here on the cross, bears the guilt of our sin alone. This is why the cross then has been a focal point of salvation. Not that the other things aren't important. They're all important. They all go together. None of them would be left out. But it, it, the cross then just becomes this great high point of our salvation in our thoughts. Because prior to this very day, this delivering to be crucified, prior to this, promises were made. Hundreds of promises were made. And on this day, they were all fulfilled. These are promises kept to which even now all of history looks back to this very day to Christ. On the cross, the greatest display of wickedness that man redounds to the greatest display of God's glory. At the cross is where steadfast love, faithfulness, and righteousness and peace kiss each other. We've looked at the glory of the cross thus far from the perspective in John chapter 19, if you haven't been with us, from this perspective of fulfilled scripture. Even just small incidental things are mentioned in this chapter. I, if you haven't looked at it, I encourage you to do so. That is great glorious. John noted very obscure events, like soldiers gambling for his clothes, not breaking his legs, piercing him in the side. All of that had been predicted by prophets and all of them fulfilled on this very day. Last week we looked at a few scenes, three of them in particular, vignettes that are incorporated in this narrative. This is a story in that sense. John presents this as the story, the narrative. And in that we looked at a few scenes from last week the sinners on either side of Jesus, the sign, as I've already mentioned, above his head, 
and then, of course, the soldiers at his feet. All of these redound to the glory of Christ. Today, I really want to focus on, if we can get to it, two more scenes that redound to his glory that are tucked away in this narrative of this crucifixion. It points to, first of all, we'll look at the saints, and then the Savior himself. So let's read it in its context, though. And I'll begin at verse 16 and read through verse 37. John chapter 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus and went out and bearing his own cross to the place called to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, top to the bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, and see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things, but... Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. That these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. That one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let us pray. Father, I do pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll grant us a glimpse of your glory. 
I pray right now, anyone under the sound of hearing this proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you will bring them to a true confession that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. For those of us who have recognized that and made that confession, I pray that you will build us up in your most holy faith to give us great courage and conviction to continually confess Jesus Christ as Lord, not just in this season, but in every day of our life. I pray that Christ would be exalted and glorified and adored even this day and forevermore. Amen. The setting, verse 16, to be delivered, to be crucified, is to be beaten nearly to death prior to being impaled on a cross. Jesus himself, bloody pulp, in a weakened state, then is stripped naked and mocked by Jews, Romans, and the crowds, and the criminals next to him, and the soldiers below him who dressed him up as a mock king in defiance. And now they're simply gambling for his possessions. What a great forbearance and mercy that Jesus Christ at this very point shows those that are worthy of death. Who? Every single one of them. Remember the heavenly host, the angelic beings praising God at the incarnation of Christ. I imagine them at this point now are being absolutely restrained by the very word of Christ. No, no, not yet. I, it is not finished. Not now. It is God's will to crush Jesus. It is his will to do this in order to bear our penalty, our due reward of being absolutely crushed. There is no greater love than this. Paul would tell us in Romans why we were weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if you've evaluated yourself and recognized that you're ungodly, you have good news, Christ died for you. If you think that you're not ungodly, Take a closer look, truly examine your heart, and I think you'll find something not pretty there from time to time. Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, maybe a noble cause, right? Perhaps one would even dare to die for that, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His enemy. At the foot of this cross, then, as we mentioned, is our soldiers gambling for his clothes. Now spread your view just a little farther out in the circle. Close, relatively, but just a little farther out, you'll find some people standing around the cross that all the gospel writers refer to, and we'll look at some of their comments to get a fuller picture. But in John, it begins here, verse 25. Standing by the cross, as it's indicated, you have some people there. His mother, his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene are those whom John identifies in verse 25. Several women named Mary. It's a common name. There is one man there identified as a disciple. Now, at this point, we remember what's going on. Jesus was arrested, and all the disciples have fled, essentially. Jesus had prophesied this and pointed to that as well from Psalm 88. I'll read it for you in John 16, 32. Behold, the hour is coming, he's teaching his disciples, and indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Not in an absolute sense, but virtually alone. Jesus had hundreds of followers. So many so that he had to turn many away. Remember, they were just seeking him for the food, the benefits that they can get. So this term for disciple is a general sense, but we also have a specific sense in those that were the most closest, who many of which became apostles, sent ones, anointed in a special way. They've gone too. He's essentially alone. When Jesus was arrested, they fled. They were scattered. And it is understandable to be associated with Jesus at this time, and he's going to be crucified. They know the fix is in. To be associated with him might entail that they would be arrested and be executed. If you remember, when Jesus confronted that angry mob, he just said, who are you looking for? Asked them twice. The first time they fell over like dead men, and then they got up and he asked them again, mostly not that he didn't know, but he wanted them to know legally they only had the right to get him and not the others. The others hightailed it out of there, essentially. But if you remember, as we have read this text and looked at it, there are two that kind of sneak back in the scene. It's Peter and John. They're courageous. They're close to Christ. They want to get a glimpse of what's going on at this trial. They witness it. And Peter, if you remember, just he's kind of on the outskirts and confronted by a few people, and he denies Christ not once but three times, ostensibly, I guess, to save his skin. But then he remembers the Lord had even told him that, and so he cowers away in shame. He goes away again. John remains. On the periphery, but he's there. He remains. He is this one who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John talks about himself in that way throughout his gospel. I'll just give you some quick examples. Some people have wondered, who is this person? It is John. His objective is to lift up the glory of Christ, so he diminishes his own aspects in, in that way. It's how he writes. 13.23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. If you get the bigger picture, you'll know this is John. John 20, verse 2, Simon Peter and the other disciple, they're running to the tomb, one whom, he says, one whom Jesus loved. John 20, verse 8, the other disciple 
who had reached the tomb first, went in and saw and believed. 21.20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This disciple whom Jesus loved is John. This is how he describes himself in a diminutive way, if you will. Who is John? If you read the other gospel writers, you'll find a little bit more about this apostle named John. We think of him as the disciple of love. And maybe that would be right because of the description, the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you really want to know the root of John, his basic character, he was called a son of thunder. Him and his brother James. You can find an account, you want to look it up later on, Luke chapter 9 and verse 54. Here he's confronted with some antagonists, the Samaritans. And in this case, John doesn't have an interest to bring him water. <laughs> he wants to bring some fire. <laughs> and he says, Jesus, should we pray and bring down fire from heaven and burn them all up? No wonder he's called a son of thunder. He's a real hellfire and brimstone preacher. We know a lot about Peter and his foot-shaped mouth. All of the apostles were a work in progress. Jesus will restore Peter back to ministry. We'll find that in chapter 21 when we get to it. But I would ascertain here, at this point, John's already been broken of his brash behavior and attitudes. I'm not going to push that too far, but this constant description of himself as both the other disciple and specifically as the disciple that Jesus loved is because I think more than anything it's hard for him to grasp. You imagine this. This is a wild person. Unrestrained in many respects. He's not that respectful in his community. And yet here you have God incarnate, the king of glory, reaching down to save a wretch like John. John is able to commune with Christ and put his head on his breast. This wicked and vile man then is chosen by Christ and loved by Christ. Now there are the Nathaniels of the world who Christ chose that were godly and respectful people who really didn't have any external guile that people could see and God does save and they are still sinners and they need to come to Christ but they're not they don't have a propensity to great evil and wickedness like John and Peter did and some of the others but both of them are in the kingdom. John was chosen by Christ. I identify a lot with John. Plucked out of the wickedness of humanity. Not growing up in a Christian home. Surrounded by evil and evil men. But Christ snatched me.
And beloved, if, even if you're in a good place, and if Christ grabs your heart, it was a heart that was previously in rebellion against him. It's just sometimes it's more obvious to see. And I think John never really, as I read it, never really got over the fact that Jesus loves me. Yeah, I know. Because Jesus Christ told me so. Listen, if you're in Christ, you have been chosen to be one with the beloved. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you've been. There is one superstar, if you will, in Christianity, and that is Christ and him alone. But all who are in Christ are beloved by the Father as much as Christ. That is an unbelievable concept to grasp. I don't think John has gotten over it. And as you think on it, perhaps you will never will either. Back to our text, it also describes beyond that disciple whom Jesus loved, it describes some women. Four are mentioned, his mother, his mother's sister, which is Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, by the way, was a woman who was possessed by demons, who Christ cast them out. She wasn't this fictitious character. She wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't something Jesus' girlfriend or other nonsense that is bandied about. This is just a woman who was possessed by demon. Christ sent them out. She was a godly woman, follower of Christ, and all of these women here, notice, they're braving it out. Maybe a little easier for women in some respects that they might not be attacked by the mob, maybe, but maybe not. Quite brave for them to be there. Mary is a common name, and so you have three. But notice that the mother of Jesus, whose name is Mary, she isn't even identified as Mary here. It's just his mother. He says to his mother, verse 26, Woman, behold your son. Jesus addresses his mother. Here he's on the cross. She's below it as woman. Now understand, this is not a derogatory term to speak to some a lady in that culture as woman. But what it does do is demonstrate that there is a distinction right now between in their relationship. He doesn't say mother. And I think that's, that's important to note. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the wedding of Cana, if you remember, it was a time in which Jesus addressed her in that way as well. Jesus reminded her that their relationship would now change as he began his public ministry. Her role, Mary's role, was completed. He does show great care for Mary, but he treats her like a creature like the rest of us. She's a sinner like us all. So Henry alluded to this morning, actually we didn't talk about it, it was interesting you brought that up, Henry, a lot of this stuff goes together, thanks for laying a foundation, 
for the veneration of Mary by Rome, the Roman Catholic Church has really abused this wonderful lady, and I'll talk more about her in a minute, but they've abused her character in great ways, venerated her in ways that shouldn't be, and have exalted her, really, I'd argue, above Christ. She isn't on the same level. She's not a co-redemptrix. She is not a mediator between God and man and Christ. She's a sinner who needs a Savior. She's a beautiful saint, but she is a sinner. The Roman Catholic Church has four Marian doctrines, all of which are heresy. And they still hold to them today, by the way. It's one of the reasons we reject, reject Rome. They're, they do teach some things that are right. This is completely wrong. They teach the divine motherhood of God that comes out uh, from Mary, that comes out. The Council of Ephesus in 431 talked about Je Mary being the mother of Jesus Christ, of course, but they've expanded that into some notion that she is a divine mother. The Immaculate Conception, which they point back to the Lateran Council of 649, expressed an idea that she was sinless. The church didn't hold to that, but that's what they point to and they hold to today. That she, that is Mary, was without sin. In 1854, one of the popes decided, well, she was a virgin at the birth of Christ, therefore her virginity needed to be perpetual. Even though the scripture talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. And in 1950, a recent revelation by another pope affirmed that Mary was assumed into heaven in bodily form. What's worse is they teach that this was taught by the church and all the disciples believed it. You will not find that there at all. It's not in Scripture, and this is one of the reasons we emphasize Scripture alone as the authority. If it doesn't agree with Scripture, it's wrong. And none of this idea is in Scripture at all. Mary is not primary beyond the Gospels. She's not even mentioned but once in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 in which she's with the rest of the disciples, praying, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the church. She's alongside Jesus' brothers in Acts chapter 1, who apparently now come to faith in Christ. On occasion, she could be mentioned for theological purposes to the church, particularly by Paul, who goes through a lot of theology in his writing to the church. I'll give you one quote where it could be, but it's not directly identifying Mary. It's Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the terminology normally used in reference to Mary, not a reference of great veneration, but of a servant born of a woman. The apostle's intention then is to direct our focus on Christ, not Mary. Mary does serve her purpose. She however, has no further role in the church. She is not a mediator between man and Christ. 
She isn't Jesus' mommy, so you can go to her and pray so that she will tell her son something so her son would tell her daddy something. This is heresy. It is wrong. So we must be careful not to make too much of Mary, and particularly at this time, as Rome did. That's damnable heresy. However, I would stop and say we need not to make their heresy, however, diminish our appreciation of this godly girl. And for that, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We read this earlier. You guys are going to have to come back for more sermons. Or I will have to stop getting so excited about preaching. We'll see. Luke chapter 1, I want you to see this for yourself. Mary is a sinner saved by grace. Rome's made way too much of her. But we must not minimize this servant of God from which we can learn much from. Because she is truly blessed. Listen how she describes this circumstance in which she has been called to. To, yes, as Henry mentioned, really potentially bring great danger to herself. Potential death as God called her to serve. And she does agree. She magnifies the Lord. That's her response. We call this section the Magnificent. Mary's song. And it is beautiful. And it's worthy of meditating, not because Mary's so great, but is what she sings about, who she points to. This is what we're trying to do, by the way, in our music. It's not to point to how great we are in performing all of this, and all of this was wonderful from the very children to all in between. Right? It was all beautiful. But it's beautiful expressions of somebody that is glorious, and that is Christ. Listen to that tone as she sings. Verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in what? God my Savior. Right there you can see from Scripture, she recognizes what? She needs a Savior. Why does she need a Savior? Because she is a sinner. Without a Savior, she would be hung on the cross. Without a Savior, she would be crucified. She would die. The wages of sin is death. (coughs) She needs a Savior. So, she has great joy and she rejoices. Why? Because God is her Savior. And she recognizes her circumstance for, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. I mean, she's like Nathaniel here, right? Good people can get saved. Because good people are sinners. That's why. She, she wasn't out like John, some wicked guy, or Peter. She was a good girl. But she recognizes in her heart she needs God. And she needs to be saved. And so she recognizes that. And her response is to magnify the Lord. He has looked on my humble state. And now she says, for now on, all generations will call me blessed. She has received the very favor of God, and that is salvation. Can I tell you this? If you are in Christ right now, you are then among the blessed. 
Because Christ is the beloved. You are then loved because of Christ. She's recognizing that. And that all will then call me blessed. That is, she is a saint. She has been made a saint by Christ. Not through her accomplishments. But notice here, a recognized recognition that she's a sinner, needs a savior. She recognizes her humble state. She doesn't accomplish anything. This has all been given to her, graced upon her. For verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, right? She doesn't look at her own righteousness, her own holiness. She looks to the holy name of God. Verse 50, his mercy. What would you need mercy for? Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. His mercy. So she deserves something, and she's not getting it. She deserves death. She's not getting it. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Beloved, that is for you right now. His mercy is greater than your sin. And whether you recognize it or not, holy is his name. Jesus is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. Mary receives mercy. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She recognizes his name is holy. There is but one Redeemer who is Christ the Lord. And Mary reminds us indeed of that. Jesus here on the cross simply looks down at her and takes his responsibility to be the caregiver. At this time, it's assumed that Joseph is dead and he passes it on not to her biological children, but to another saint who has been saved by grace who has a greater connection to Mary than her own biological children. And and he picks this awful person, John, who has been saved by Christ and now has become the beloved John. We'll have to pick up on the rest of the story next time. For today and this season... It is my prayer for each of you as you glimpse at the glory of the cross, even here expressed in Mary's song, that that indeed would be your testimony of faith, that you would have great joy in even the worst of circumstances and that your soul would magnify the Lord and rejoice internally of God, your Savior. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful again for your goodness and grace and mercy that you have poured out upon us. I pray for myself and each one here, indeed, that we would exalt in our praises and worship to you, Thinking back even on the incarnation, it is just the beginning of the glories to follow. 
may you bless us and keep us in great praise of your holy name and declare indeed that your mercy is for all those who fear you, who put their trust not in themselves, but in you alone from this generation to the next. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, we give you a minute typically now just to think on these things that we have talked about. If you want to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you can do it right now, whether you're at your home or you're here in attendance. You don't have to confess to me. I'm not the mediator between God and man. It is Christ Jesus, as we pointed to. So go to him. Repent and receive Christ as your Savior. If you want to just take a moment to exalt and magnify his holy name for his salvation of you, take a moment to do that privately where you're at now. If anyone wants to speak directly to the elders, we'll be around when the service closes. Take a moment. Think on these things. grace and mercy provided to us in Christ alone. May this season be an exceptionally rejoicing season for all your beloved. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand and turn to 188 in our hymnals. It came upon the midnight clear. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, John 14. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for this opportunity to hear of your son born in a manger. And Father, that you proclaimed it to be so 700 years before the event even happened. And the prophet Isaiah wrote about it. And he said in chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form of majesty that we should look on him or no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep. All have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we do indeed praise you and give you glory and thanks. And we rejoice that you have done this for us. Father, bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 